Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. At the movies, and those of you who have been part of The Rocks for some time now know that every year after Easter, we do this series as really a fun, often lighthearted, sometimes serious, always enjoyable way of exploring the intersection of culture and scripture. And of course, movies have this wonderful way of capturing the full breadth of human experience. And so all the hopes and dreams and aspirations and fears and desires that we have are wonderfully captured in film. And of course, the Bible has a lot to say about those things too. And so it's always a very worthwhile and interesting exercise to see how those things overlap and how they connect. Now, it kind of goes without saying, but I will say it anyway, that obviously not every movie is a message from God. And not every element of every movie resonates with kingdom values or with Christian priorities. And so when you watch movies, you have to watch movies discerningly, using the Bible as your frame of reference. And that's certainly true of this movie too. But it's a great movie. It's a wonderful story. It's a love story. And it actually resonates quite deeply with the greatest story ever told, the the story of God's redeeming work in the world and what it is that God has been doing for the last several thousand years. And so we're going to explore that together today. Now... Uh, for, for those of you who are perhaps not familiar with the story, it's, it's been around for a long time. In fact, there are variations and versions of this particular story that are in various cultures around the world, some dating back as far as 4,000 years ago. But the version that you and I are most familiar with is the famous French fairy tale by the title Beauty and the Beast that was first written in 1740. And back in 1991, Disney Animation turned it into a a blockbuster animation film. And then in 2017, more recently, they turned it into the live action feature that you have just seen the trailer to. And if you are not familiar with the story or have not seen the movie, let me just briefly bring you up to speed. So obviously, the story revolves around the lives of two main characters, Beauty and the Beast. And Beauty is this wonderful, brilliant, intelligent, delightful girl by the name of Belle, who is in many ways precisely the kind of heroine that many of our young ladies deserve today. Uh, Belle is not particularly interested in being anybody's princess. She just wants to discover who she is and find out what the world has to offer and experience and enjoy all the delights of life. And she's the kind of person who is courageous, but not entirely fearless. She is confident, but not arrogant, and she is in a lot of ways precisely the kind of young woman we would hope our daughters become. And in this movie, she is cast by Emma Watson, which I think is just one of the most um, perfect casting calls for this particular role. So more about her in a moment. But of course, the other main character is the Beast, who first appears in the film as a rather handsome but insufferably self-absorbed prince who lives essentially all alone in this rather large, lavish castle up on the hill, away from all the masses, and he lives a very self-indulgent, luxurious lifestyle. Unfortunately for him, all that self-indulgence comes back to bite him one day when he refuses hospitality to an elderly beggar lady who shows up at his castle one night looking for food and shelter. And he turns her away rather insensitively and, and selfishly, And it turns out that she is something of a sorceress. And so she's able to put a spell on him and she curses him and turns him into this hideous looking beast, which is really meant to be an outward expression of the ugliness that is already in his heart. And she leaves him with this 
magical rose that loses petals like one year at a time. And the only thing that can break the curse and liberate him from this hideous condition is if he is loved and learns to love before the final petal falls to the ground. Now, he is, of course, um, surrounded by a handful of servants who are there to do his every bidding, and these servants, unfortunately, are also affected by the curse. And so they are turned into household items, and one of them becomes a teapot, the other becomes a candlestick, the other becomes a clock, and one of them becomes a credenza, and they pretty much spend the entirety of the story trying to get beauty and the beast to fall in love so that they can liberate him from the curse and ultimately liberate themselves. And in the movie, it's these items that provide much of the comedic relief right throughout the film. And then there's a couple of other really important characters. So there's Belle's father, and Belle's father is an interesting man. Uh, he is out snooping one night around the beast's castle, and he ends up getting himself into trouble. And he is captured by the beast and imprisoned by the beast. And, uh, and he's kind of locked up there indefinitely. And of course, when Belle finds out that her father's missing, she goes looking for him. And when she finds him, she does something incredibly selfless, and that is she offers herself in exchange for her father's release. And of course, the beast thinks this is a brilliant idea because Belle is a considerably better looking option than her father. And so he releases uh, Belle's dad, and, and, and Belle ends up becoming the beast's prisoner. And she goes from being a prisoner to being a servant to being a carer to ultimately being a friend and then becoming the romantic interest of the beast. And the other significant character we need to know about is a man by the name of Gaston, who is also incredibly good looking, but also insufferably self-obsessed. And he is the movie's kind of primary antagonist. And when he discovers that uh, Belle has been imprisoned by the beast, he hatches a plot to go and kill the beast to liberate Belle, because he kind of wants Belle for himself as something of a trophy wife. And fortunately for us, he doesn't do that successfully. And so really the, the whole film plays out around the tension that is created by this deepening, growing, kind of blossoming, very unlikely romance that is developing between Belle and the Beast on the one hand. And then, of course, on the other hand, the disappearing magical rose, which kind of is a constant reminder that for the Beast, time is running out. And if he does not love and learn to love before that final rose petal hits the floor, then he will be confined to the prison of his hideous ugliness for the rest of his life. But because this is a fairy tale, it has precisely the ending we all hope that it does. And eventually, Belle and the Beast do fall in love. And just moments before the end of the film, she leans over and she kisses the Beast. And he is magically transformed back into a handsome prince. Only this time, he is a much kinder much gentler, much more personable version of himself, and they all live happily ever after. <laughs> all right, so that's in a nutshell the story. And if you've never seen it, jump on a Disney Plus and stream it. It's a fantastic movie. So the question this morning is, what is it about this story that resonates so deeply with us? Why has it been so popular and so pervasive for so many years and in so many cultures and so many contexts? And perhaps more importantly, what is it about this movie that connects with the truth of God in Scripture? And for me, there's a couple of major themes in this film that I think connect with probably some of the most important truths in the story of what God is doing in the world right now. And the first is this one. The first big idea is this idea of self-concern and the binding curse of sin. Self-concern and the binding curse of sin. 
if you ask any Christian person here today, what is wrong with the world? What is the problem with the human condition? Why is the world the way it is? I guarantee you every single Christian is going to say the problem is sin. And when they say that, what they mean is all those attitudes and actions that you and I engage in and display that we know are contrary to what God has already revealed as being His will and His way in His Word. And that would be right. That is the fundamental problem with what's wrong with the world today, what the Bible calls sin. But what is often missed and overlooked is that there is something that precedes sin. There is something that serves as a precursor to sin that resides in the heart of every human being, and it's this element of self-concern or self-interest. In fact, if you cast your mind back to Genesis, the very first story in the Bible, to the beginning of human creation, to Adam and Eve, in that particular story, before Adam and Eve sin against God, before they take the fruit from the forbidden tree and eat of the one tree that God said to them, do not eat from, before that happens, there is something else going on in Adam and Eve's heart. And it's this element of self-concern. They say to themselves, having been misled and tempted by the devil, they say to themselves, you know what? We can be better than we are. We can be more than we are. We can be like God. Even though God has said, don't do this, don't take of this tree, we can take matters into our own hands and we can advance ourselves and improve our station. We can do something independently of God and we can improve ourselves. Self-interest, self-concern. And friends, it's precisely that self-interest and that self-concern that is the precursor to sin and ultimately and inevitably leads to sin. The way, the way I like to describe it is, is by using a lawn bowl. If you've ever played lawn bowls, you'll know not only is it a fantastic game, but it's a very insightful experience because every single lawn bowl has a weight on one side of the bowl called a bias. And the idea is as you release that bowl down the bowling lawn, the bowl will bend in the direction of the bias. So if you want it to curl to the left, you want to make sure that the weight is sitting on the left side of the bowl. If you get it wrong, your bowl goes in the wrong direction. Now, the fact of the matter is every single human heart has a weight in it, a bias towards self. And if you release a human being down the lawn of life, unchecked, unchanged, unchallenged by the grace and the goodness and the power of God, ultimately that human being is going to bend in the direction of self. Self-preservation, self-concern, self-interest, self-righteousness, self-aggrandizement, self-protection, every form of self-interest that you can possibly imagine. Release a human being down the lawn of life and we all bend in the direction of self. In fact, psychologists talk about what they call the self-serving bias that resides in every single human heart. And they use that term to refer to the propensity that we all have as human beings to credit ourselves with our successes and others with our failures. So in other words, if I uh, write a test and I do really well on the test and I score high, I tell myself it's because I'm smart, I'm intelligent, I studied hard, I worked hard, and I, clearly I'm an excellent person, right? But if I do badly on that same test, then I tell myself, well, it's because the teacher didn't teach well and the question wasn't clear and there wasn't enough time in the exam, right? You get the idea? It's like if I'm, if I'm always late for work, it's always because traffic was crazy. And if I'm on time for work, it's because I'm organized and I'm well-planned and I'm thoughtful, right? If, if my son is like obedient and respectful and disciplined and submissive, it's because he's my child. 
And if he is disobedient and disrespectful and incorrigible and rude, it's because he's his mother's child. All right? You get the idea. That's self-interest. That's self-interest. And it's self-interest that causes us to judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. It's that same self-interest that will cause a husband to pretend that he is asleep at 3 o'clock in the morning when the baby starts crying. So that his wife has to get up and go attend to the baby, right? Self-interest, it's in all of us. In fact, you know, we have a lot of young people away at the moment on a youth camp, which is wonderful and fantastic. And I was thinking about this moment back when I was in youth ministry and my now wife and then girlfriend and I were leading a youth group and we were on a youth camp. And one night we were sitting in a dormitory with a group of youth leaders and we were planning the next day's activities. There's about 10 of us in this room. And unbeknownst to us, the young people were planning an attack. So they had kind of armed themselves with shaving cream and eggs and flour. And, and we were sitting in this room having this meeting, planning, and there was only one door in and one door out. And suddenly the door burst open and all these teenagers came pouring into the room, armed to the teeth with all this stuff. And they just began to pelt all the leaders. And I was sitting up on the top of a bunk bed with my girlfriend sitting next to me. And I don't know what came over me. All I can just think is this is the, the primal, powerful instinct of self-preservation. And as they came bursting in the door and I realized what was happening, I, I fell over behind her and I grabbed her and I pulled her in front of me and I used her as a human shield. <laughs> and so she just got hit with all this stuff like... And as soon as it was all over and all the teenagers kind of filtered out, I, I kind of pulled it off and I put it back on the, on the bed next to me and I looked at her and she was just covered from head to toe in all this stuff. And she looked at me like, I cannot believe that that just happened, right? I'm supposed to be her knight in shining armor. Now, thankfully, she still married me. Right? But that's what I'm talking about, self-interest, self-interest. And James, who was the half-brother of Jesus and, and one of the most significant leaders in the early church, wrote a little letter in Scripture called the book of James. And he says in James chapter 3, verse, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, he says, temptation comes right, from our own selfish desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. He goes on a little further down in the same letter in chapter 3, verse 16, to say, For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. And what we see in this film is this element of self-interest and self-concern personified. Firstly, in the selfish prince who becomes the beast, but also in Gaston and even to some degree in Bell's dad. In so many characters, this element of self-interest and self-concern is so present. And ultimately what happens is the prince falls under this curse. And friends, the curse is really nothing other than being a prisoner to the ugliness of your own selfishness. That is the nature of his curse. And in a very real sense, we are all under that curse. The Bible says we all labor under the curse of sin and death, the curse of selfishness and self-obsession. And ultimately, that's what that curse is, to be enslaved to the ugliness of your own selfishness. In fact, Paul the Apostle, who was another significant leader in the early church and a man who authored much of our New Testament scripture, he writes about this condition, the human condition under the curse. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28 to 31, and listen to how he articulates it. 
He says, and because they thought that it was worthless to acknowledge God, God allowed their own immoral minds to control them. Enslaved to your own selfish desire. So that they do these indecent things. Their lives are filled with all kinds of sexual sins, wickedness and greed. They are mean. They are filled with envy, murder, quarreling, deceit and viciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, haughty, arrogant, boastful. They think up new ways to be cruel. They don't obey their parents. They don't have any sense. They don't keep promises and don't show love either to their own families or mercy to others. I think the best way to describe what Paul is articulating here would be beastly. The reality is that our enslavement to our own selfishness and sin ultimately just gives birth to a kind of ugliness. And while in this film we may look at the, the beast and kind of despise the beast, I think the reality is at the end of the day there's something of the beast in all of us. And I think we all are confronted with the reality of that ugly selfishness. And we all feel the shame that the beast feels in this particular film. But of course, this element of self-concern and the binding curse of sin is not the whole story. And it's certainly not the end of the story. Because there's another major idea, a big theme in this film that resonates so deeply with the truth of Scripture. And it's this, the idea of self-sacrifice and the liberating power of love. Self-sacrifice and the liberating power of love. You see, we could not possibly talk about this film and not talk about its primary theme, which is love. And part of what makes this film so powerful is that it attempts to tap into that universal human longing that we all have to be loved and to love. Every single one of us deep down want to be loved for who we truly are and loved in spite of who we truly are because none of us are perfect, and every single one of us has this deep longing to be seen, to be known, and to be loved. Now, of course, Bell is the first person to give us a glimpse into what the true nature of love really is. When she does something incredibly selfless in offering herself in exchange for the release of her father, what a sacrificial and selfless thing to do. But then she goes on to do something even more selfless and sacrificial in that as a prisoner in the beast's castle, she becomes his carer and becomes his servant and becomes his friend. And gradually over time, through her gentleness and through her patience and through her kindness and through her generosity and through her selflessness, her example of love begins to melt his heart. And the hardness of that selfishness begins to dissolve. And he learns to love. And to be loved through Belle's example. And in a very real sense, we all have to learn the same lesson. We all have to learn how to love and we all have to learn to be loved. But we need love to be the example. And gradually over time as his heart melts, it is her love, her selfless, sacrificial love that liberates his heart and breaks the power of the curse. And I think you can see where I'm going with this, right? Because without doubt, one of the most important statements in all of Scripture is found in 1 John 4 verse 8, which says, God is love. God is love. That is perhaps one of the most important statements in all of the Bible because it tells us something essential about the nature of God, about the very essence of God. God is love. And the order of that statement is so important 
Because you can't reverse it. Notice John says God is love. He doesn't say love is God. In other words, you have to begin with God if you want to know what love is. You have to begin with the character of God and the nature of God if you want to define the character and the nature of love. You can't do it the other way around. You can't begin with your own working definition of love and then try and figure out who God might potentially be based on what you think love is. That doesn't work. You're going to end up with some weird ideas about God. You have to begin with the nature and the character of God. And when you understand his character and nature, then you will understand what true nature and love is. God is love. So let me give you an example of how this works. We know from Scripture that God is eternal and unconditional. By that I mean there's, there's no contingency. That God is not contingent on anything. God just simply is. He has no beginning and He has no end. There is no first cause to God. He is eternal. He is immutable. He is unchanging. Now, because that is the nature and the character of God, that is true as well of His love. Because God is eternal and immutable and unconditional and unchanging, His love is eternal and immutable and unconditional and unchanging. And that unchanging, unconditional, eternal love is simply perpetuated indefinitely toward you and towards me. That means there's nothing you can do to deserve it, nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to stop it. It just simply is, and it's directed to you. And that's why uh, Jeremiah the prophet in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 said this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That's just a poetic way of saying God's love has no beginning and it has no end. You cannot exhaust it. You cannot deplete it. You cannot escape it. You cannot stop it. God's love is steadfast, eternal, immutable, unconditional, and unchanging. And it is forever directed towards you and towards me, which is why Paul, who we read about earlier, says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, he says, The love of God is demonstrated in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that the extent of God's love and the nature of God's love and the character of God's love is revealed in the fact that Jesus was willing to selflessly and sacrificially give himself for you and for me while we were still sinners. In other words, while we were unworthy, while we were undeserving. Well, you see, if, if, uh, if I say to you, um, I love ice cream, that probably says more about ice cream than it does about me. Because ice cream is lovely and therefore lovable. But if I say to you, God loves Vladimir Putin, that says more about God than it does about Vladimir Putin. Because Vladimir Putin's not particularly lovely right now and not particularly lovable. Not even his own mother loves him. <laughs> Pretty beastly at the moment. But God loves him. That is the nature of God's love. Immutable, unchangeable, unconditional. And here's, here's, the, here's the, the point, friends. Ultimately, it is that kind of love that has the power to change the human heart and to break the curse of self-concern, of self-obsession. It's ultimately that kind of love that has the power to set the human heart free. And every single one of us in this room and every single one of us listening online has this deep longing to be loved for who we really are. 
to be loved in spite of who we are. And we go to all sorts of people in all sorts of places looking for that love. But the only place you will ever find it is in God. The only place you will ever find unconditional love, eternal and unchanging love, transforming and liberating love is in God. It's only when you receive it and experience it for yourself that you are then able to live it out and share it with others. And every single one of us here ultimately and ideally wants to be the best and the most beautiful version of who God made us to be. But here's the thing, the best version of you and the most beautiful version of you is always going to be the most loving version of you. If you want to be beastly, just make life all about you. If you want to be beastly, just make it all about your safety, your happiness, your comfort, your convenience. But if you want to be the best and the most beautiful version of you, be the most loving version of you. Because there is an antidote to the poison of self and self-concern. There's an antidote to the toxin of selfish ambition. The selfishness that we see in our own hearts, the selfishness that we see in our world around us, there is an antidote to that poison. And it's selfless, sacrificial, other-centered, Jesus-shaped kind of love. That kind of love has the power to set your heart free. And it has the power to heal our world. That kind of love has the power to liberate your heart from fear and from shame and from guilt and from insecurity. And not only to set you free, but to set the people free who find themselves on the receiving end of that love. So today, above all else, I hope and pray that you experience and can receive and can understand and can enjoy the love that God has for you. Because no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done, you need to know today, you are loved with perfect love. You are loved with eternal, unconditional, unchanging love. You can't stop it. You can't change it. You can't deserve it. You can't earn it. It is just simply given to you by God. And as you open yourself to the reality of that love, I pray that it will transform you from the inside out so that you can become best and most beautiful version of you, the version of you that God designed and desires you to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, bow your heads together with me. Let's take a moment of prayer. Father, we want to thank you so much today for the incredible gift of your word, and we want to thank you for the revelation that it brings to our lives concerning who you are and what you're doing in this world. And God, when we do look at our world today, we see so much sin, we see so much brokenness, there's so much pain, so much anger, so much rage. God, sometimes we see that in us and it's disconcerting and it's unsettling. But God, we want to thank you that in spite of all that brokenness and all that pain, you have broken into our world with perfect, unconditional, unchanging love. We want to thank you, God, for the way that you have revealed that love in and through your son, Jesus, who is without doubt the most beautiful and wonderful person and the most beautiful and wonderful thing ever to happen to us. And Father, I pray today, first and foremost, that for every single one of us here in the room, for those listening online, that our hearts would be transformed by that love. That you would help us to accept your acceptance of us. 
Help us, God, to receive your goodness, to receive your kindness, to receive your love for who we are. And God, I pray that that love would change us from the inside out, that you would help us to live selflessly and sacrificially in service and in care and in consideration for all those that we do life with. God, pray that you would bring your beauty and your goodness to us and bring it through us to our world so that all our world might know that you are good and you are God. And we pray these things in the precious, wonderful name of Jesus. And everyone who agreed said, Amen and Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.com.